All right, we're going to be in the book of Exodus, chapter 28, 29, and then we're really going to be all over the place, to be honest with you, after that. Uh, going, to be, going to be covering a lot of ground this morning, a lot of, uh, a lot of Scripture. We're making our way through the book of Exodus, just pretty much, uh, if not verse by verse, certainly chapter by chapter, looking at w- what it is here in this great book. And uh, last week we looked at the tabernacle and what that meant to the people of Israel, how it points to even greater things for us. Uh, Today we looked at the idea of the presence of God uh, and what that means and how important that is. And we're going to continue to work through that idea a little bit more this morning. And we're going to look at it from a little bit of a a different angle, a different perspective, but all still very much uh, connected together. So uh, this morning we have come here and we have gathered here. We have prayed. We have sung. We are opening God's word now, which you guys hopefully have a Bible. If not, we'll have the verses that will pop up on uh, the screen. We're doing these things that uh, for many of you would be very, very familiar to you. And even if you have not been here at Providence before, at the very least, what we've done so far, you've been able to uh, understand, you've been able to comprehend, even if you don't know necessarily the rhythm of how we're doing things. Uh, uh, maybe some of it seems a bit odd, but either way, you're able to comprehend. And, and the service is de- designed that way, right? The, the songs are designed, the prayers are designed, Chris talking between songs, that is designed. Me talking now is all designed to help us understand more, to comprehend more, to exhort us to praise and to worship. All of this is taken for granted that this is how this works. But if you were to go back about 500 years ago, you wouldn't be able to do any of those things that I just described. The Bible would have been read in Latin. The songs would have been sung in Latin. The sermon would have been given in Latin. The prayers would have been given in Latin with no translation anywhere for you to figure out what is going on there. No, the people didn't speak Latin. Nobody spoke Latin. Nobody understood Latin except for the priests, the highly educated class, and the priests were the only ones that could have understood it. They would have been able to speak these things, but you would not have. You would have just had to sit out there and observe what was going on and know when to stand and when to sit and when to do all of those things. There's a good chance you wouldn't have been able to to read or write English either. But you almost certainly wouldn't have been able to do anything with the Latin. You wouldn't have had time to study it because you would have taken almost all of your waking hours just to survive in your work that you did, let alone study extra things like the languages in Latin. In many places, it would have been illegal for you to study Latin if you weren't pursuing academics in order to become a priest. There was a small group of men who were able to read the Bible, to teach the Bible, to offer prayers on behalf of the people, all in Latin. And these men were the priests, and they were incredibly powerful. You can imagine the power that would have been concentrated in this small class of people. There was usually one church in town, not one all over the place like we have. There was one church in town, and it would be a Catholic church. And one man could read the Bible and offer forgiveness for your sins. Can you imagine if you had one place that you could go where one person could read you the Bible and one person could offer you something like the forgiveness of sins? 
And whether or not you did whatever he prescribed for you would determine whether or not you received that forgiveness. Can you imagine the power that would have been concentrated in that man or those small group of men that would be the priest for the church? That man would have been in charge of listening to you confess your sins, confess your darkest secrets, the worst things that you have done. That man would have known everything about that town, everything about you, and would have had full control over what was going on. This was, in part, what helped launch the Reformation a little over 500 years ago. On October the 31st, we celebrate something called Reformation Day when, uh, that, that happened just a little over 500 years. I think we're at 502 years now is where we're at. A couple of years ago, if you were here at Providence, we went through the five solas of the Reformation, remembering what happened there. But Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis, his 95 kind of summary points to the church door in Wittenberg, and he was in part declaring that the priest had too much power and that it wasn't warranted by the position he held. He, among other reformers like Knox and Zwingli and Tyndall and Wycliffe and Huss and many, many others came to this conclusion because they could, in fact, read the Bible. And in reading the Bible, they realized that the power of the church, in particular the power of the priest, wasn't compatible with what they read in the Bible. And what came next was the Protestant Reformation which shook the world in ways that you cannot even begin to comprehend. It shook the world, and it changed everything. It changed everything about the way society worked. It changed everything about the way people approached the church. It changed everything about the way people approached God. All of that was tied to this. So what was it that they read that so caused such a massive shift in, this, in the world? What did they find in the Bible that propelled them to risk their lives for the sake of getting this message to the people? What was it that they did? Why is it that today we don't stand here with a Latin Bible chained to the altar because it could not go out to the people for fear that they might try to read it themselves? What, what is it that, that changed that where we can stand here and we can offer prayers so that we can all understand them? What changed so that we can open our English Bibles and begin to learn? So what we're going to do today is we're going to open those Bibles and we're going to see what it is in the New Testament and in the Old Testament that lays this out for us. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start back in Exodus 28, 29. We're going to look at what the role of the priest was, where the priesthood began. And then we're going to fast forward to the, the, the New Testament. And then we're going to see what it is that, that caused these reformers to revolt against the priesthood. And now what we read here in the Old Testament is not exactly the same thing as what the, the reformers were, were pressing against in the Reformation. But it comes from the same place. It was an attempt to redo what we see here in Exodus. So Exodus chapter 29 is actually where we will start. And we're going to read. Now remember, we just looked at the tabernacle, all the super detailed rules about the tabernacle, all the, the ways in which the tabernacle existed. You had the Holy of Holies, and you had the, 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 the lampstand, and the, the altar, and you had the different separations and the different degrees of who could go where. We've just read all that. Now we're going to talk about the priests. So let's see what it is. Let's see what it is that, that God has for us. Exodus chapter 29, verse 6. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. This is explaining how you consecrate the priest to begin the priesthood. 
You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. You shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. You shall ordain Aaron and his sons. So this is where it all begins. These are instructions for the establishment of the priests. Kind of like what we might call an ordination, a setting apart of these men. It, 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 it begins the priesthood and, and, it, and it takes it to, to Aaron and his sons. To this point, the priesthood had been kind of, the, the, the service of the priest had been done by Moses. He was the one that went before God for the people. He was the one that would relay the message from God to the people. Moses did that, but now God is saying, all right, this is going to be removed from Moses, and we're going to give this to Aaron and to his sons. So now let's read what it is that the priests are to do. As This is part of the, the, the kind of ordination service, but this also gives an idea of how they are to function. Exodus 29, verse 10. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. And then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. And the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys and the fat that was on them and burn them on the altar. The flesh of the bull and its skin and, and its dung you shall burn with the fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. So what we see here as this priesthood is established is, is we see that this is the work of the priest. Now again, this is the ceremony establishing Aaron and the priesthood, but this would be what they would continue once the priesthood begins. They would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. Their work as the priest was to be the intercessor, the go-between, the mediator between God and between man. They are to stand at the altar and they are to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. That was their job. You keep reading in this chapter and you'll see all kinds of other offerings, food offerings, grain offerings that are to be uh, peace offerings to God. And the priest is to offer all these up on behalf, all these up to God on behalf of the people. So you see the, the kind of intermediate role, intermediary role that they play. Look down with me in verse 35, Exodus 29, verse 35. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days, through seven days shall you ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and you shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. So that's important there at the end. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. So you can see the role that the priest is to play for Israel. It's a massively important role for the nation of Israel. Everything must flow from him to God and from God to him. This is how this works. This is kind of the channel in which the priesthood works for the people of Israel. Moses had occupied that role until now, but now God is placing this in, in the, uh, Aaron and his sons. It's a powerful role, full of significance, full of meaning for the people of God. And if you'll remember last week, we saw where all of this happens. 
in the tabernacle, right? That's what we talked about. It happens in the tabernacle at the altar. For some specific sacrifices, it would happen only in the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest can go to offer a sacrifice on behalf of God's people. So we know where it happens. Now we know who does it, who offers this sacrifice. The priest could go there and the the priest could offer this and it would be the priest that would be in the presence of God. And then God echoes this at the end of chapter 29, verse 42. It says, it shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons will, I will consecrate to serve me as priest. I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. You see how many times it says something about God dwelling among them. So we saw the dwelling place and now we see the means by which God can come and dwell with them. The tabernacle and now to the priest who offers the sacrifice. All of this, all of this is a means to an end for the presence of God. And there is nothing more important to God's people. There's nothing more important to God's people in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, and there's nothing more important to God's people today. Whatever needs you walked in here with this morning, Whatever, whatever things are on your heart, whatever it is that, that, that you're dealing with this morning, all of it is insignificant to God's presence. And if you allow your mind and your heart to sit still long enough, if you allow your mind and your heart to, to, to be still and then allow it to be loud enough, you'll understand this too. You see, we are good at shutting up our hearts. We are good at drowning out our emptiness. We are good at at pushing away our conviction. We have tools upon tools upon tools to do it. We have books and we have TVs and we have phones and we have social media and YouTube and the internet and we have sex and food and alcohol and we have jobs and we have money and we have degrees and we have papers and we have work and we have all these things and all of these things will drown out our hearts and our hearts are desperately trying to get our attention and if you are still enough long enough when they finally do whether that's because you're still enough to hear it or because God stops all that other stuff and makes you listen when your heart finally gets your attention It will be crying out for fullness. It will be crying out for hope. It will be crying out for something that will tell you you're not as bad as you're afraid that you are. But the reality is you are that bad. That's why here in Exodus chapter 29, all of this blood has to be spilt. That's why if you read through the book of Leviticus, it's nothing but all these sacrifices that have to be offered. It's a river of blood flowing from Exodus through Leviticus, and it's all because of all the sin of the people. And the priests have to stand there and give offering for all of it. 
And what you and I need in that moment when our hearts finally get our attention and they say, you are bad and I am empty, what we need is the presence of God. And God gives us a picture of what we need for that to happen. We need an offering. We need a sacrifice. We need blood to be spilled. We need a place for him to dwell. And we need a priest to make the offering. Now, if you've been here the last few weeks, we've covered the first few of those. We've seen that Jesus is the sacrifice. That he is the one that has the blood spilled to make atonement for our sins. We've seen that laid out for us. We've seen that the place for God to dwell is no longer in the tabernacle, but through Christ and through the Holy Spirit, it is to dwell within us as we are now the temple for God. That as Jesus came and he dwelt among us, he tabernacled among us, what we see is that we become God's dwelling place. So that covers the, the, the place and it covers the sacrifice. So what about the priest? That's our missing thing there, right? So we've got these three things that we need. Two of them we've covered. But what about the priest? What is the final missing piece there? And there's two ways that we can answer this question. We'll start with the primary one. And then we'll answer it the second way, which is kind of an outworking of the first. Now, I've read a lot of this out of the book of Hebrews over the last few weeks, and I'm going to read a lot out of the book of Hebrews this morning because he says it better than I can. But I want to go to Hebrews chapter 9. So you can turn with me to the New Testament now. Hebrews chapter 9. And I want you to see what the writer of Hebrews has for us and how he explains this role of the priest and how things change. And it is these things that these reformers read that said, hang on, wait a minute. Things are not quite what they've led us to believe. So Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. So he's going to talk about the tabernacle, exactly what we read about last week. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which was the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a, uh, a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, and which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing, overshadowing the mercy seat. And then I love how he says, of these things we cannot speak in detail, which he just kind of did. He laid all those out for us saying, all the things we looked at last week, here's what's in the tabernacle. And he lays all that stuff out. And then he says, verse six, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into it, but into the second, only the high priest goes and he, but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So most of that should sound pretty familiar to you if you were here last week. That's everything that we described about the tabernacle and the picture of the priest that we now read today. All of that is just kind of being relayed here and, and kind of re retaught. The author of Hebrews is just explaining how these things existed back in the first covenant. But now something is going to be different. Something's going to be different now as we look into the new covenant. And then we see in verse 11 how Jesus shows up as both the tabernacle, the offering, and the priests. Verse 11. 
But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have to come, or that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of his creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood or goats or calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Do you see what it's saying there? It's saying, so Jesus shows up, and no longer does a high priest have to go and offer these sacrifices that we've read about before. Jesus shows up, and he doesn't need the blood of goats or bulls or anything else. He brings his own blood as the sacrifice, and he makes that offering for an eternal redemption. It says, for the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of deviled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So what this is saying is exactly what we've been talking about over and over in the book of Exodus. Shadow in the old, fulfilled in the new. There's a shadow in the old with the, 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 all these different sacrifices, all these different things of blood that are just animals. That in the end, they're just animals and they cannot save you. But then Jesus shows up and it says, if the animals were an acceptable sacrifice before God, how much more would the pure, innocent blood of the Lamb of God be? And therefore, he is, this is verse 15, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So what this says is now Jesus comes. He is the sacrifice. His blood offers the sacrifice. And now he is also the mediator. So the writer of Hebrews is just explaining how Jesus is both the sacrifice and the priest. He's both the one on the altar and the one standing above the altar in order to offer the sacrifice. Jesus fulfills both of those roles. So you see how he's just laying this out there, saying, look at how great Jesus is. Look at how great Jesus is. Look at how great Jesus is. He does this, and then he does this. And this other thing that you saw, he is that too. Over and over and over, he says this in the book of Hebrews. And then verse 11. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. He kind of comes to a summary statement of this, and he says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So in the Old Covenant, those, those sacrifices of bulls and goats, those were designed to make an offering, a peace offering to God, but they never removed the sins fully. And the high priest would stand there, and he would stand at the altar, and over and over and over he would offer these sacrifices. He would be covered in blood. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So then when Jesus shows up, his blood is the perfect sacrifice for sins. It does take away sins. And there's no need for us to, this morning to offer a sacrifice to slaughter an animal up here. There's no need for us to do that because Jesus, as the high priest, stood and said, I will make the offering. I will kill the lamb. I will present this before God. And when he was done, he sat down. There's no need for the continue, continued offering, or offering for sins over and over and over like the priest did in the Old Covenant. 
Because Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. And then in verse 15, the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So the writer of Hebrews goes back to the language of the old covenant and he says, God told us there would be a new covenant that would come. And when this new covenant would come, then he would, he would make this new covenant. He would write the laws on our hearts and there would be no need for a continual sacrifice because there is forgiveness of sin. That is a beautiful passage. That is a beautiful passage. In Exodus, the priest has to make the offering after offering after offering. There is no end because Man's sin has no end. But now, because of this offering of himself, Jesus, the high priest, sits down. His work is done. It is finished. It is complete. Does that sound familiar to you? Have you heard that somewhere before? Jesus on the cross, the last words that he said before he dies, he says, it is finished. Once for all. And he sits down from his work of the priest because no more offerings are to be made. Go with me to Romans chapter 8 now. Romans chapter 8. I told you we're going to be all over Scripture this morning. Romans chapter 8. And there's a lot more I could read that I'm not going to. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So who's going to come and accuse us of sin? We have Christ's blood on us. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. And then get this, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He is now interceding for us. So when we take all this together, that Jesus presented himself as the sacrifice, as the acting high priest, he committed the sacrifice that was once for all and then sat down. And now as he is in front of God, he pleads for us on our behalf. His blood pleads for us that says they are forgiven. What Chris said, that they are mine. This is Jesus, our high priest. We no longer need the priesthood of the Old Testament because Jesus has fulfilled that role. There's no longer a need for a priest. There's no longer a need for a tabernacle. There's no longer a need for a sacrifice because Jesus has fulfilled all of those. He is the one that now intercedes on our behalf. He is the mediator for us. I want you to listen to this uh, read this in a, in a book from one pastor that another pastor uh, kind of created this imaginary conversation. I want you to listen to this. So, uh, imaginary conversation between a, a Christian in first century Rome and, and his neighbor. And the, the, the neighbor comes up and says, Ah, I hear that you are religious. Great, that's awesome. Religion is a good thing, it's good for the empire. Where is your temple? Where's your holy place? And the Christian replies back, We don't have a temple. Jesus is our temple. No temple? Well, then where do the priests do their work? 
Where do they have their ritual? Where do you offer these things? Well, we don't have priests. Jesus is our priest. No, no priest? Well, where do you offer these sacrifices? To, 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 how, can you, how can you appease your God? And then the Christian replies back, we don't need a sacrifice. Jesus is our sacrifice. To which the, the Roman replies back, what kind of religion is this? And the answer back is, this is what Christianity is. And it's not a religion. We're not here to offer rituals that are empty that are trying to appease God. We are here to follow Christ, who is our high priest, who is our sacrifice, who is our temple. This morning, you will not hear better news than that. Your greatest need is that your, your sins have been atoned for. And Jesus does all of this for us. From the beginning, God initiated this plan in to be in his presence. You read that in Exodus. Do you see how that happens? Like God calls Moses up there and he says, here's the rules for the tabernacle. Here's the rules for the priesthood. Here's the rules for the sacrifice. It is God that is establishing all of that, but he is coming and he is saying, this is how you will come into my presence. It is God initiated. And he gave us this shadow in Exodus. And now he gives us the substance in the new covenant. And this is worth celebrating. This is the God we worship. And this is the salvation that we celebrate here Sunday after Sunday. The doctrine of Jesus, our high priest, is one that we miss and that we don't dwell on enough. But there's some practical outworkings for this too. One of those is that we know you and I no longer need a priest for our holiness. You see, if you fast forward now uh, much further in the future, about 500 years ago for us, before the Reformation, what you see is that you had to come to the priest in order to get into the presence of God. The priesthood in the, the Catholic Church was modeled some, in some ways after what we see here in Exodus. And you would come to the priest and... And you would, have to, you would have to come to them in order to, to, to get to God. He was the kind of go-between. And this is why everything was done in Latin, because the only one who needed to know what the Bible said was the priest, because you got everything from him. The, only, the, the, the reason the prayers were offered in Latin is because the only one who needed to know what the prayers were about was the priest. And this is where we come to what would have been another central tenet of the Reformation. It's known as the priesthood of the believer. So we saw Jesus, our high priest, and now what we see is the priesthood of the believer. And what it means is that you don't need to come to a man and ask that that man pray for you. You don't need a pastor or a priest to convey forgiveness for you. I don't need to go... So listen, I'm a pastor. I, I don't need to have a, a, a box over here where I sit so that you guys can come during the week and confess your sins to me. Right? That's not my role. You don't need to come to me. You have to come to Jesus. And you look in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 4, what Peter writes is, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, 
You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And then get this, to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This was at the heart of the Protestant Reformation, and it shook the world. That you and I are a royal priesthood. All of us. Not just a handful of chosen men that have gone through special education, but all of us, we are together a royal priesthood. And this began to strip the Catholic Church. This began to strip the priesthood. This began to strip even the Pope of the stranglehold that they had of defining what it meant to be godly and what it meant to come before God. These reformers set about to translate the Bible and to get it out of the professional's hands where only the highly educated could understand it in Latin. They came out and they said there aren't two classes of Christians, the professionals and the layperson. You have the same access to God that I do. You have the same access to God that any priest does. We all have the same access to God through Christ. The Pope has nothing on you. You don't need someone to tell you what the Bible says. You can go and you can read it for yourself. You don't need someone to pray for you. You can go to God and pray yourself. You don't need someone to grant you forgiveness because you go to Christ to find forgiveness. Martin Luther said, For whoever comes out of the water of baptism can boast that he is already a consecrated priest, bishop, and pope. And this doesn't negate the role of the church. This doesn't mean that the church is not important. It just kind of recalibrates it just a little bit. No longer do you come and sit under me so that I can deliver God to you. That is not how that is designed to work. Because now the church is a community of priests. That together we can consecrate one another before God. That we can aid one another in sanctification and holiness. That together we can offer up prayers of confession and repentance and praise. It is a beautiful picture. And it's a doctrine that we do not appreciate enough. You can pray to God right now. That, that was a revolutionary concept 500 years ago. The way we do church is built around this too. I'm here teaching the Bible. I'm here going through the Bible. We have small groups and discipleship groups where you can go through and study the Bible. My expectation is that during the week you will study the Bible. We offer prayers, but they are corporate prayers in which we, we echo those things together, not prayers from me that you guys just hope that you can tag along to. We teach, we exhort, we, we sing songs. All of these are designed to, to, either, to either instruct in a way that allows you to come alongside or, or to, to encourage you to offer your own praises. All of this is built on the idea of the priesthood of the believer. You can read the Bible, you can study the Bible, you can know the Bible, you can practice the Bible. I'm only here as a pastor to, to teach those things and to help with those things in a way that, that comes alongside you, not that stands over top of you. According to Ephesians 4, I'm not even here to do the work of the ministry. I'm here to train you so that you can do the work of the ministry. That's what Ephesians 4 says. 
So it's not the, the ministry is not for the professionals who have direct access to God. It is for all of you who have direct access to God. William Tyndall translated the Bible to English because of this. One of my favorite quotes is from William Tyndall. He says this. He says, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life many years, I will cause the boy that drives the plow. He shall know more of the Scripture than the Pope. That is awesome. He died for that. He was strangled and then burned alive after he was dead. John Wycliffe, he translated the Bible into English. He died, and then 43 years later, they dug him up and burned him at the stake because he was supposed to be a heretic, because he was taking the, the, the power out of the priest's hands. And he got it from right here, reading the New Testament. The priesthood of the believers. I'll leave you with one final thing for us to consider as we leave this morning. As priests, like, for, like Peter says, we too have an offering and a sacrifice to give. Did you see that? I'm going to read that again from 1 Peter. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up to a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. And then what does it say? Why? To what end? To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter says that we are to have an offering, a sacrifice to give. So what does that look like for us in our context? What does it look like to live as a community of priests before God? What kind of sacrifice are we to bring? Romans 12.1 tells us, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In some ways, like Jesus, we are priests presenting ourselves as an offering. Our offering is not for atonement as Jesus' offering was. That's already accomplished and applied to us as believers. But our offering is still an act of worship. Our sacrifice that we present to God of ourselves is still an act of worship. My prayer this morning is that we would be able to offer ourselves, our minds, as it says here in Romans 12, our bodies, that we would be able to offer ourselves in worship to Christ, our great high priest, that we have access to and we have access through because of his sacrifice. Because he is both the tabernacle, the sacrificed, and the priest. That's an amazing thing to be able to consider this morning and to celebrate. Will you pray with me? Father, we rejoice in the fact that we can bow our heads, close our eyes, and lift up a prayer to you, and you will hear us. Not on our own merit not on the basis of our own goodness, not on the basis of our own sacrifices that we have made, but on the basis of the perfect blood of Jesus Christ. Father, we come before you now and we confess that we do not, 
we do not know, we do not appreciate, we do not celebrate this truth enough. Father, may we live in awe of the fact that we can come before you. That Christ's blood pleads on our behalf. Fathers, for those that don't, that don't know what it's like for that to be true, that are continuing to make their own sacrifices before you and hope that you will, in hopes that you will accept them, I pray that you will open their eyes this morning. And that they will see that you are that sacrifice and the high priest who offers it. Father, thank you for Jesus. I thank you for his sacrifice. And I thank you that he is done. And that we can live under that. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.